Hello, and welcome to another episode of Headlight in the Fog. We're your hosts, Akshay Thomas and Laura Kaplin. Today, we're joined by Drs. Wendy Smith and Dr. Lynn Hasman. Uh, Dr. Smith is an assistant professor at the Mayo Clinic Department of Ophthalmology, and Dr. Hasman is an assistant professor at the John F. Hardesty Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at Washington University. Uh, Wendy and Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. Today's topic is going to be starting up your university uveitis practice. And just to get us started, we'd like to have a little background on both of your training and how you came to practice at your current location. Um, Lynn, do you want to go ahead and kick us off with a bit of your background? Sure. Thank you for inviting me today. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. Um, Yeah, so I uh, did an MD-PhD at the University of Virginia and had planned to do uh, something immunology-related, possibly transplant immunology, and sort of stumbled into ophthalmology and fell in love. And there was really never anything but uveitis in ophthalmology for me. Uh, So I I come to ophthalmology with a love of medicine already. And um, I did my uh, residency at University of Rochester uh, in New York. And then I did a fellowship at the Moranai Center in uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, and I had always had my eye on Washington University in St. Louis for uh, its immunology presence. It's kind of an immunology mecca mm-hmm. and have interviewed or visited here many times throughout my training. And so I actually, I reached out to the chairman, Todd Margolis, who's also a uveitis specialist, mm-hmm. uh, about a job here. And um, th- there wasn't really anything posted, uh, which we, we could talk more about that later, but Um, That's how I ended up here. And it's been amazing. Awesome. And Wendy, what about you? Yeah, so I did uh, medical school and residency at Ohio State University in Columbus. And I I came to medicine in a very zigzaggy path. I I wasn't pre-med as an undergrad, and that's a, a whole very long other story. And I originally thought that I might be interested in pathology, but I realized that I like to actually see living patients instead of pieces of patients. So that, that put pathology on the back burner. Um, so even I, when I read about uveitis, I had this feeling that I was going to like it. Um, and that's kind of the thought that was sitting in my head when I started residency. I didn't get to see very much uveitis actually as a resident, just a little bit here and there. Um, Mitchell Premchek um, was still um, in private practice in Columbus. And so we rotated with him. Mm-hmm. And then um, I knew that I was going to do fellowship and uveitis continued to be the thing I was most interested in with retina coming in kind of a close second. And when I um, interviewed for fellowships, I, I didn't really know anything about them. I had no good, <laughs> I didn't have good resources. I just kind of fell into things, I think. And uh, because my husband was going to stay in Ohio, I wanted a one-year fellowship, but I did apply to NEI, which could be done as a one-year, but could also be done as a two-year. And I was, <laughs> poor, poor Nita Shen, um, could tell I was a little disappointed when I matched there, but it was, <laughs> it was <laughs> because I didn't want to do two years away, but it was the best thing that happened to me. It was a, a really interesting place to be a fellow. Um, and I knew going in that I wanted to do academic medicine. Obviously, people do use uveitis in combination with lots of different things, but I knew I wanted to be academic. And when it came time to start looking for a job um, at the end of my first year of fellowship, um, 
you know, again, I wanted to primarily do uveitis. There ah. aren't very many postings <laughs> just for uveitis. And indeed, as Lynn said, you, you may have to reach out. Um, I did reach out to um, another uh, institution that wasn't posting, and that was one of the places I was considering. And then Mayo Clinic put up um, an actual posting. And Emily Chu, who knew the, knows the chair at the time, Jay Erie, said, you should you should apply. So I thought, well, Mayo, I don't, where is that? It's, I think it's somewhere. <laughs> oh, Minnesota. I don't want to move to Minnesota. Um, well, I came here for my first interview and the culture of Mayo is, um, it's like its like a uveitis specialist dream because our culture is to, to cooperate and communicate with each other across departments. And so, uh, sorry, I think my cat is trying to join the podcast. But, um, <laughs> uh, and so when I, when I was leaving after my first interview, I thought if they offer me a job as a, a new trainee coming out of fellowship, there's probably not a better job for me right now. And I, so I came to Mayo and uh, now nine years later, I'm still here. <laughs> well, that's excellent. I mean, as, as the title of this podcast suggests, we're talking with um, doctors that are in university-based practices. And as you both mentioned, there's already uveitis presence at your universities. <laughs> but Lynn, you mentioned that there wasn't a job posting. You kind of had the institution in mind. So, so walk us through that process. How did you get in touch with them and, and how did it kind of take, go from there? Uh, let's see. So I had, um, I had actually emailed and met Todd Margolis before, like when, as a resident and, uh, thinking about where I wanted to do fellowship and thinking about, uh, uh, the fact that I wanted to do research, uh, uh, as part of my practice. And so I'd kind of talked to, and, uh, WashU had a uveitis fellowship posting, although they don't really have a, a formal program. They made up a fellowship at one point for somebody. So I talked to him and he said, yeah, you could come here. We'll make something happen for you. And you can have a bunch of research time. And he, um, is a cornea specialist who also does uveitis. Mm-hmm. And there's another, uh, Dr. Kumar Rao, who is a, a retina specialist who does uveitis and, and oncology pretty mm-hmm really, um, really well and high with high efficiency, but kind of de facto because nobody else was for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talked to him and he kind of wisely said, you know, we could certainly make this happen for you. We would welcome you here, but there's, there's really, you know, just the two of us that kind of have this uveitis mixed into our practices. There's not going to be a lot of pathology for you to see, and you might have a, a better training experience somewhere else. Um, so I had kind of been talking to Todd about my future plans from way back then and decided not to go to WashU, decided to go somewhere with a lot of uveitis volume. Like Wendy, I didn't see a lot of uveitis in residency either. Um, and, you know, people would actually sometimes ask me about uveitis because I was the one passionate about it, but <laughs> but not really educated. Um, so I wanted to see a lot. Uh, I wanted a really busy um, fellowship. And so that's why I went to the Moran. Uh, and then, you know, just started up the conversation again with Todd towards graduation. And Wendy, when you first joined then at Mayo, tell us a little bit about who had been doing the UVS before you and kind of what the situation was when you joined that group. Yeah, so uh, Dave Herman had been the UVS specialist um, primarily for years, and he was actually, um, he did also did glaucoma and, and a bit more of a focus on anterior segment 
um, inflammation. And he also um, was heavily interested in, uh, in administrative work. And so he actually had left Mayo a year before I started to be the CEO of a hospital in uh, South Carolina, I believe. And he's still, he's actually back in Minnesota and he's the head of um, Essentia Health in, uh, in the Duluth area. And he's heavily active in the ABO um, mm-hmm. uh, the ex- board exams. He was, in fact, I think, one of the examiners when I took the oral reports. <laughs> um, I don't think he was my examiner, but I think he was one of the the hall folks. And if, if you were ever in the same hall with him, he always mm-hmm. tells jokes. So, um, <laughs> hi, Dave. Uh, so they had not had a UVA specialist for a year. And um, so patients had been sort mm-hmm. of dispersed amongst um, the other areas, peds and cornea and retina. And some people just kind of got lost um, in the cracks, I think. Mm-hmm. So I, I was walking into a pretty good situation in that um, there were some patients already out there and there was a huge need. There weren't any fellowship, recently fellowship trained UVA specialists mm-hmm. in Minnesota at all when I came. And um, in uh, Wisconsin, uh, I think uh, only one person out there in Milwaukee, and this is before Laura um, came, and uh, nobody in the Dakotas and uh, just at the, a few folks at the University of Iowa. So um, big market for me. <laughs> Could you guys go through a little bit of what your um, current practice setup is? What's your mix of clinical time, research time? Do you do you operate at all still? Lynn, you can go ahead. Okay. Uh, so right now I see patients between uh, one and a half and two full clinic days per week. When I started here, um, I was also very busy really, really quickly. Uh, there was another UVA's person who I haven't mentioned, who I didn't mention already, um, Humera Karachal, who left about a year after I started. Um, but there, there, very quickly, I got busy, and so I started um, with a with a plan to do surgery, and I did surgery for maybe two years, a uh, year and a half or two years. And uh, the plan was like one OR day a month, and then it was two OR days a month, and then there was just more and more uveitis patients. So I was adding clinic sessions and, um, you know, just having less and less time for research. And also for me, I'm kind of a, I mentioned that I came to you ophthalmology with a medicine kind of perspective. I'm, mm-hmm. I think of myself as kind of a slow thinker, and it was, it was kind of a lot for me to, um, be the kind of surgeon I wanted to be and put the time and effort into like uveitic, uveitic cataracts is really what I was interested in mm-hmm. uh, and trying to do and, and continue to grow and uh, from the training that I had at the Moran and start this research pro- program, which I'm doing something I've never done also in the research arena and, you know, be a solo uveitis practitioner. Um, so it was a lot for me, and I felt like I was kind of diluting everything a little bit. So mm-hmm. I gave up surgery, kind of um, thinking, you know, the world doesn't really need another cataract surgeon as much as I liked doing that for my patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but the world does need, you know, better research on how to treat uveitis. And so that's something I can do that, and I wanted to do. So, uh, so yeah, that, and, and we've just actually hired, so I'm, I'm opening my lab now. I, I just have a couple people I've hired and everything is really taking off. And so, um, we've just hired, um, a recent grad, Jamie Walsh, um, who's going to see patients one day a week. So I'll be going down to one day a week and have four days a week for lab. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And, and Wendy, what about you? What does your kind of average week look like? 
Yeah. So when I started, I had um, some guaranteed non-clinical time and uh, that was guaranteed for the first three years. And then after that, um, we have some departmental funds. So you have to, everybody has to apply um, for time. And so currently, um, and I'll, before I go through that, um, I had a similar thought process or experience as Lynn that I was operating and primarily doing Uveda cataracts um, when I started, but um, doing less and less and feeling like, um, the preparation the night before um, and mental preparation was taking years <laughs> off my life because it's so, <laughs> it's very stressful when you don't operate mm -hmm. very often. You, you really have to be in the zone. And I take very, I took very seriously when I consent a patient, you know, I, I, if you don't feel like you're necessarily going to be the best person to do the surgery anymore, it's not responsible to continue. And similarly to Lynn, um, there were plenty of cataract surgeons um, in my department and nobody else who wanted to take care of the patients that I take care of. So they needed me more in the clinic than in the OR. And so um, a couple, uh, like f four years after I started or so, I, I stopped doing cataracts. But I also do medical retina. And so I, I um, I do intravitreal injections and Osrodex and Alluvian and Utique. Um, and I, um, I also can do retinal lasers and YAGs, but although I, I rarely do that now because we have fellows and residents. So um, my non-clinical time is about 15%. And part of that is because I um, last year became our medical retina fellowship program director. And um, so I'm in clinic three full days a week um, yeah. and <laughs> I do a, I'm getting tired. Thank you, Ada. I do a, <laughs> a half day um, injection clinic Wednesday mornings and then I'm in clinic every other Wednesday afternoon and every Tuesday afternoon. So I have an interest in research, but just as Lynn said, I found it really hard to do everything. We are also expected to teach, of course, and that's probably my, my number two interest after patient care. Patients come first for me. Um, and if I have to see a patient during non-clinical time, I do it. And, and that is why I'm not very productive research-wise. Now, I believe Lynn and Wendy, both of you do your own immunosuppression. Is that correct? Actually, I have um, I have an embarrassing riches of rheumatologists ah! here. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Actually, we do a lot. We send a lot of our uh, second opinion rheumatology over to Mayo from here in Madison. So I, I do know you have an embarrassing wealth of, of rheumatologists there. Um, but okay, so Lynn, though, you, do you do your own immunosuppression? I do. Yeah, and it's it's very uh, closely wed to my research interests. So I, that's something I wanted to keep um, the. Uh, Retina specialist Kumar Rao, who also sees uveitis, mostly posterior uveitis here at WashU, has talked to me a few times about how to be more efficient clinically and the fact that, you know, he, he doesn't do immune suppression. There's a rheumatologist, actually, who comes to the eye clinic on the days that Kumar sees mm -hmm. uh, uveitis patients. It's a really nice setup. Um, but I, you know, I think that uh, looking in the patient's eye and I, I like talking to the patients and I like the medicine and, you know, my research is kind of focused on um, how to learn more about uveitis so we can use these medicines better. So th there's a number of reasons that I enjoy and feel it's important to keep that, even though I do often feel like I'm doing two doctor's jobs in one clinic visit. Um, but 
<laughs> so it's less efficient than than Kumar's practice, but um, but it's it's gratifying to me to kind of give that comprehensive care. Maybe in some ways it's replacing what I'm giving up by sending the patients for their cataract surgeries to my colleagues. So coming into a practice where there wasn't already somebody doing their own immunosuppression and wanting to do that, um, what type of infrastructure did you need to work to set up to make that a reality for your practice? Yeah, I was um, a little blindsided by what I needed to do um, coming from um, a fellowship program that had been established for a really long time. And it is also a very efficient quasi-academic private practice place. Um, and they had kind of have people who do all the different jobs and everything seemed to kind of come together seamlessly. So everything was very different at WashU. And um I um, kind of did a lot of stuff on my own. Like I, I had a, initially a really good sort of, um, scri- they call them scribes. So it's really a secretary. It is mostly what the, the, the people here do. Uh, so I had a really good secretary who um, was a fast learner. And, you know, I kind of taught her how to do some of the prior apps. But I spent a good amount of time calling insurance companies and fighting and filling out papers and eventually have written a lot of the, letters that are, you know, this is why the patient needs weekly Humira. So I've, I've kind of like collected a, you know, a dossier full of, of these, you know, evidence-based petitions. <laughs> um, so that's one thing. Um, the schedule was really, um, really hard uh, to manage. I guess that's a little off, off your topic. No, I think that's but, great, um, actually. Why don't we segue into talking a little bit about what your, your clinic templates and yeah. what these clinic templates look like and how you manage news versus returns? Because um, I think that's actually of interest to a yeah. lot of our trainees as they have to set up their own templates once they get their new jobs. Yeah, and all of that has kind of... Um, for, for me in my practice kind of come together in one person. So I, I've gone through a few different secretaries and identified one who had been a technician and really good at that. And I've really taught her to do prior auths and managed her, helped her manage her time and um, kind of helped her develop protocols for, you know, helping me manage a lot of these medicines. So I actually have gone from spending quite a bit of my research time on outside of clinic patient care to um, really probably just a few hours a week. I prep my charts ahead of time, which probably everybody doesn't have to do, but I'm not, I'm not including that in there, but just like really not that many hours, usually outside of clinic. Um, which, that's been enormous for my job <laughs> satisfaction and research time. Um, but, the, but then, um, this, yeah, the schedule has been really t- a, a, a big issue too because the practice did get busy really quickly and I was trying to... Um, protect my research time and have just kind of minimal clinic time. So then, you know, the, the um, schedule would be really tight and a, a scheduler or a secretary who, who wasn't sort of a cognizant of how complex these patients are would just make up appointment spots. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And then I would spend hours like going through the schedule and saying like, this doesn't work. We need, and then, then, okay, now we need to just add an extra clinic session and asking the, you know, managers, we can have more tax. And it was, it was a nightmare. And some of that is because some of the patients would like mm-hmm. no show and I would always just let them write back in. So I'm learning a lot <laughs> of lessons <laughs> for sure. But I have a, a, a secretary now, a medical assistant type person who's really good and works really closely with me. And actually my department was really, my chair was really generous in um, just saying, yeah, you can have her full time. And she, her salary comes out of my profit and loss. And actually we, 
I'm still, I'm in the black now. I have, I'm happy to say, even though we have this person. So it's been, it's been really good um, and has worked out really well. Do you use um, the same technicians for your clinics too? So they're fairly familiar with your uveitis patients? Yeah. And I didn't push really hard for that, but there's already kind of a core group of people who enjoy retina, which I, I see a lot of posterior uveitis and kind of work more closely with the retina people. Um, although I see plenty of scleritis, et cetera, too. But so there's kind of this retina core group who some of them started working with me and um, they tend to like uveitis. And so I think that, you know, the, the, the practice in general tries to kind of put people where they like to be and where the doctors like them. So I end up with um, one technician who is almost always with me, who's fantastic and kind of orients everybody else. And then a, a couple of like a small handful of other people who rotate in and out. And I usually have two technicians. Um, I usually have about three, maybe four rooms. And the technicians um, are expected to do like OCTs and maybe autofluorescent pictures. And then there's usually a different imaging person who will do FAs, ICGs. Uh, and then we see, my template is to see 14 patients in a morning half day. And like two of those are injection slash IOP slash urgent add-on spots. And then more like 12, I think, in the afternoon half day. Um, and yeah, I, I spend a lot of time talking to patients. So I, I, I'm hoping that we'll make that a little bit more efficient, but that's about where I can be right now. Uh, do you have an ideal mix of like news versus follow-ups within those half days? Yeah, I, I right now I'm seeing two news in each session, and I'm thinking for um, I'm thinking about for research purposes pushing all the news into the morning, and then um, I'm I, just to recruit more patients into my studies. But uh, so I, I may I may do that as well. But usually I it's two or three news. It's usually two news, um, and I see them at like maybe eight and nine, and then there's just kind of follow ups uh, or injections kind of scattered through there. And Wendy, given that you're both medical retina and uveitis, do you try to separate your clinics or are they a mix of patients or, or how does your clinic template typically run? Yeah, it's been an evolution for me um, too since I um, started. So um, now for the most part, I try to separate my medical retinas out um, into one half day. Uh, I have a, a couple of spots um, in my two of my morning clinics where I'll put a few um, retina injection return patients because they're usually really quick and straightforward um, compared to uveitis. But for the most part, I try to keep them separated out because it's it's quite unpredictable. And um, similar to Lynn, I um, I tend I actually tend to like my new patients in the afternoon because um, you know <laughs> if it's somebody who's coming for the fifth opinion, that's not going to take. Um, a short amount of time. And so I, <laughs> but Laura's, Laura's patients are wonderful because it's very well documented. And usually I know she just wants me to re reiterate the plan that she's trying to get the patient to accept. I'm laughing because I just so, saw a Wendy so, opinion on Wednesday and I told my staff, I was like, yeah. you need to block the following slot because this is not going to be a quick conversation, <laughs> but also wonderfully documented. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know ex I know exactly who you saw. <laughs> um, sorry. We've got a long yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. So and I, I sometimes will um yeah, so I and I, I take I hold very tight control over my schedule. I allow nobody to add a patient without my approval. And my I have a technician um who works 
well, she used to only work with me, but now, unfortunately for me, they pull her other places and because I complain less mm-hmm. than other people, I think. But anyway, um, so she actually screens all my new patient requests and she knows what testing I need. And I, I almost occasionally she will have a question and I'll review something. Um, and so I, I look at my schedule and I sometimes will choose where a patient returns because if it's an anterior uveitis who needs no testing, that's a perfect AM patient because they're not stuck in photography and you're waiting for them. Um, scleritis usually doesn't have as much testing either. So I, I sometimes will just look ahead and say, okay, that day, that time. Right. And Laura, Laura, since you, since you're the, you're, you're our third university based uveitis specialist here, we'll, we'll ask you how, how does, how's your clinic template and how do you divvy up your more comprehensive versus your That's actually a good question. So I still do comprehensive ophthalmology a day a week. Um, I haven't quite been willing to give up cataract surgery yet, but I, it's interesting because I'm getting to the same point in my career about where I feel like both Wendy and Lynn have started to cut back. And I sometimes debate how much longer I want that mental stress the night before surgery. Um, but I haven't been quite willing to turn my UV to cataracts over because I like to be in charge of their post-op management so tightly. And so that's been kind of what keeps me in the game with that. And as of right now, I see two full days of uveitis clinic um, and probably will be adding another half day sometime in the near future here. I keep my comp and my uveitis as separate as much as possible. There's always some inevitable spill over the uveitis clinic, but I agree the nature of the patients are just more, so much more complicated. It, it kind of disrupts the workflow to have them in the comprehensive clinic. Um, and I, similar to Lynn, try to not do more than two to three news per half session, half day session. I think my big, this is actually my second practice, academic practice that I'm at. And so we're still in the growing phase. So we're, we're not anywhere quite near, I think, to Lynn's volume yet. Um, we are a little bit flanked by Wendy on one side, um, Milwaukee on the other, and then Chicago beneath me. So we're still kind of in the growing phase. But our, our goal template, I think, is to kind of get into that 13 to 14 per half clinic as, as well. And, and we're getting pretty close. I will say that one thing I learned in my transition between practices is this need to really have people are familiar and interested in uveitis. And so I made sure when I I first started with the second practice to have a lead technician that had a big, strong interest and commitment to it. Um, And then my actual thing that no one else has brought up yet is that when I changed positions, I actually negotiated for them to hire part-time nursing support for the uveitis clinic which has actually been a huge improvement in our care, not just my quality, but actually the care we can offer to the patients. Um, my nurse does injection teaching. We've actually been able to start offering flu vaccinations within the uveitis clinic. And it gives a point person for when patients have, you know, fevers or questions about possible medication side effects, where that person's very familiar with these medicines. She knows what history to take and, and helps me with tracking lab, patients with lab abnormalities and making sure that doesn't get lost in the shuffle. Um, and that's something that I've really found beneficial. In fact, I think we're actually going to be trying to do um, a little bit of a randomized trial of actually having like a little more planned nursing counseling as actually part of their care plan versus kind of our current standard of care and seeing if we can see that that truly helps understand your know, patient understanding and comfort with these medications. But I, it was something I had not thought about with my first job. But when I changed positions, someone had said to me kind of like, a medicine colleague was like, why would you not have a nurse? You're basically a rheumatologist. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. It's just not yeah. part of the ophthalmology model. We tend to have surgery schedulers and technicians. And so it kind of changed my my 
practice level quite a bit. I, I feel like our care is much better with that. I love that. I Is it a nurse or a nurse practitioner? It's a nurse. So because I didn't feel quite that we needed to have like that same level of an actual nurse practitioner and that I'm still pretty comfortable with doing the prescribing and, you know, seeing them and, and just having that as part of the more complicated clinic visits. Yeah. But it's just been such a, I mean, having her to be able to do injection teaching, you know, answering questions about injection site reactions, you know, yeah. helping with some of the lab monitoring the prior offs yeah. and, and, and having someone that's comfortable with, you know, technicians are very comfortable with the eye, but comfortable with more systemic yeah. medicine has been unbelievably helpful. And the patients love it because yeah. they know to call, I'll say, they know to call and ask for Terry if yeah. they have a question about their medicines. And so they've got that person. They're like, I need to talk to Terry. Yeah. And they're so pleased that they can just ask for her. I love that. I wish we had that. Oops, I think if I ever went elsewhere, I, I would do the same. When I when I came to Mayo, the rheumatologist told me they'd be happy to co-manage my patients. And so they indeed have nurses that follow their labs and do all the teaching. Um, the reality is, however, that I get the questions from the patients and I see them more often Correct. than the rheumatologists do. Yeah. So, so then I'm saying, D have you had your labs? And when we switched to Epic, um, the whole system they had in place uh, went in the trash <laughs> can, <laughs> um, unfortunately. And there was a period of time that, that they had to get things set up. They now have a some kind of an Epic search set up because one of our fellows um, did a little time with them. And they have a system set up that brings up lists automatically of patients on immunosuppression um, and is um, and if I ever went elsewhere that had epic I would definitely go into their department and, and steal whatever that's it is very they interesting do because we actually <laughs> want to get something like that set up too so my nurse has an easier time monitoring that's actually interesting to know that exists so thank you Wendy so yeah, we do there, that. there is a way to do it. It's just, you know, Epic, you, they will tell you probably that you can't, or I don't know, you, you might, you might ask, maybe your rheumatologists already know how to do that. Um, otherwise, I can try to hook you up with somebody um, in rheumatology here. We do that. I have my um, MA person run that run those reports. And then um, she's responsible for you know, sometimes the labs don't come right. into Epic. They got them at lab or something and they're scanned into media. So she, then she's responsible for going through that list and saying, oh, this person actually got it scanned into media. Make sure I review it. Um, or, oh, this patient just didn't do it. And I have to call them and bug them to get it done. And um, yeah, yeah. so we've, we've, figured, we've figured out a way to do that as well. Now, I think it sounds like both of you got pretty busy pretty quickly. And I feel like that's the nature I, as we keep doing this podcast with, with um, people starting up their practices. If you build it, they will come. Um, how long did it really take you to get going, Wendy, with, with coming in and not having had anyone for a year there at Mayo? Oh, gosh. It was a long time ago. I, I did do comprehensive originally as well. Um, and... Probably by the time, um, well, after my daughter was born, I was coming back from maternity leave. I said, can I stop seeing comprehensive? Because <laughs> I can't fit my patients in. I'm putting them in on non-clinical time. So, yeah, it was, about, um, it was about two years in that I was definitely needed to kick other patients out in order, you know, not kick them out, but just stop taking new comprehensive essentially is what I did. And I was, I, uh, without the maternity leave, I was busier, faster. We, we actually fortunately had a, one of our surgical retina fellows at the time had, had done the NEI fellowship um, overlapped with me. So he saw a lot of my patients when I was out, um, which was mm -hmm. perfect. And, and what about you, Lynn? Um, it got, yeah, it got busy pretty quickly. I think I started with two half days, two UVA is half days. And then every other week was supposed to be a surgery or every month, once a month, I think initially a surgery half day. 
and that, yeah, that got busy um, pretty quickly. Now for, for both of you, obviously you're in university. So where did the majority of your referrals come from? Are they coming from community ophthalmologists and optometrists within your universities, other universities? What's kind of the mix? Yeah. So we're a little bit unusual um, in that we're not quite the same as a university, um, but similar. <laughs> um, and so Mayo uh, does have a, a national and, and international name. And so we can we can get patients from across the country and occasionally internationally, um, although right now, not so much. Um, I, I've done a few telemedicine consults on international patients just to review records and answer questions. Um, but as I mentioned, there were really no Uveitis specialists mm-hmm. in the upper Midwest when I um, when I came, and so uh, I have a, several retina specialists um, up in the Dakotas who exclusively refer to me, um, which is great. And in Northern Iowa, there's a number of um, uveitis or uh, uh, ophthalmology practices who will also um, send up to see us. But we we we, pro- we provide a lot of what I consider primary uveitis care in the region as well. So it's a it's nice mix of. Um, new onset anterior uveitis or scleritis, um, and fifth opinion <laughs> patients that are only, <laughs> that are only going to come once and then, um, you know, may, may come back maybe six months later for reassessment, but obviously do their routine care closer to home. And what about for you, Lynn? Um, I think a similar mix, although without the sort of fifth opinion, usually. Um, yeah, so I think um, we have a Definitely all throughout the state of Missouri, I'm, uh, we are the only uh, probably uveitis center, although there's, you know, there's just a handful of retina folks who by default do uveitis around. And so um, sometimes they send me more of their, um, their ch- more, more of their challenging cases. Um, some optomet- some direct referrals from optometrists, but mostly from other ophthalmologists. Um, and then we see, so I see some patients from Tennessee, uh, occasionally from like Oklahoma, definitely from Kansas. Um, I have one patient who lives like in the far corner of Missouri and she's already been to Iowa and Northwestern and, and she kind of bounces around. I, that's maybe the only like more <laughs> tertiary, tertiary opinion patient that I can think of, um, yeah, there's, and I think that there's a mix of um, usually somebody, almost always someone has seen someone before me. I, I, it's rare that I'm getting like the first, like a red eye. Mm-hmm. They, they see either like our um, university eye service, which is kind of the kind of the resident clinic, um, a little more than that, or they see maybe another general ophthalmologist in our practice or in the community. Or usually the referrals are going to be more from the retina docs in the in the more far far reaches. I actually um, have a retina, he, my my retina fellow from my residency is in Columbia, Missouri. And so we share a bunch of patients, which is really fun. He's a really super guy and it's really fun to reconnect with him. And he's t- he's thrilled when I recommend Ozerdex or something <laughs> and then let him do it. He has this whole scheme that he gave me about how to bill for those in private practice. And I was like, it doesn't it doesn't change my bottom line, so you can do them. <laughs> anyway, he, I think he made like 30K as a fellow with a bunch of kids and like worked all the time and was super amazing. So I'm like, you can have all have all the money. <laughs> so we touched on this a little bit when we were talking about ancillary staffing and, and you know, what activities can you train your staff to carry out? This is always the, the 
eye-opening question we like to ask um, people that come on the show is, how much time do you spend outside of the clinic on some of your activities related to patient care? Things like prepping your charts, looking at labs, communicating with other providers. And what were some of your strategies to help after you probably first came out of training and realized this was a lot of time, outsource some of that to make it less time? Yeah. Uh, this is an ongoing process. Um, it, it comes up a lot on well, the show. <laughs> yeah. So um, things changed when we went to Epic um, in so many ways. Uh, a few of them were good, um, like being able to see records elsewhere. That was good. So I, um, I started doing a lot more pre-charting when we went to Epic because I had to, because Epic added so much time to everything. Um, currently, I am in a really nice spot for another <laughs> another month because we have a, one of our retina surgery fellows is um, staying to do a little bit of uveitis. And so he's been doing a lot of the prep work for me, thankfully, but that's going to end. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then the other thing, when they changed billing so that you could bill on time, I actually stopped doing a lot of Mm -hmm. pre-charting because it has to be in that 24 hour time period. And if I was going to take a ton of time on the day that I saw the patient anyway, I've, I've started to shift that into the day that I see them because sometimes I can bill even higher because I spend so much time, including after I see the patient. I totally agree on that. That billing change has changed how I pre-chart as well because of that 24-hour period interval. Yeah. Um, and then for other things that take time, again, as I mentioned, my, my technician, it just kind of fell that way by accident that she was, she's very intelligent. She's, she's got really great common sense and very interested. And so she used to sit with me when I was seeing patients and that's how she basically just learned what I do. Um, for correspondence, I used to dictate a very detailed letter because that's what I did in fellowship and that took too much time. Um, and now what I do is I try to write my, as Laura knows, and, and Lynn a little bit too from a patient that we shared in common, I write way too much in my notes, but then I just have my secretary take my most recent visit and, and copy paste that into a letter and send it through Epic. So that saved me a little bit of time there. Um, I don't talk to patients very much on the phone directly because unfortunately, you know, they have like mm-hmm. 10 more questions when you're on the phone. And I, I, I spend a lot of time with them in person and I just can't do it um, at, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, which is when I have time to get to things like that. So I have a really wonderful medical secretary that I share with, um, with three other faculty members. But I told her, I don't, the only thing that I care about that you do is that you're really good on the phone with patients. And so she will talk to the patients and find out their questions. And then I know I can, um, I can tell her the answers and she'll call them back. So I, I save some time there. Um, otherwise, we're relatively inefficient um, in terms of our practice flow. I don't have um, the same start technicians. Uh, photography is, um, is historically extremely backed up. So I, I, can't, um, off, you know, I can't really delegate much else um, to other people. You know, one thing, one thing we haven't talked about, obviously, um, you both of you guys have have trainees in your program. So how do how does having trainees kind of factor into, you know, your clinic workflow and, and, and some of that work? So so Lynn, for example, if you have trainees, are they are they prioritizing, you know, seeing all the new patients or return patients or does a trainee see every single patient in clinic or how does that go for you? Uh, I, I only have trainees kind of sporadically in my clinic. Uh, and so, 
and I didn't, I didn't have any trainees for a little while. So I know, you know, like in neuro ops here, the trainees do a fair bit. I can tell from the notes that they send me sometimes, but they are analyzing, you know, they're, they're pre-charting and contacting other providers and ordering MRIs and sending patients to the ER. But I don't, they're, they're, they're not regularly in my clinic. Um, and so I, I haven't really like, even when they're there, I, I tend to not, you know, make them do work. I, or, you know, they see new patients and I, I want them to learn. And if they seem interested in uveitis or, you know, they're going into comp and they're like, hey, I'm here. They're usually, they're usually in my clinic at the end of uh, their residency. Here's the things I want to learn before I'm on my own. Then I, right. you know, I mostly just teach them and uh, don't expect a ton of them from them. Um, sometimes the retina fellows, if they're the retina fellows come to my clinic, mostly if they're interested or if they want the time, and usually they're pretty helpful with notes, but I don't, I don't benefit a ton from trainees. I, I mostly just teach. Sometimes I have rheumatology or med, med students or something like that, but. Right. Right. And Wendy, what about your clinics? Yeah, that was definitely the situation for me more often than not. Um, However, we also have a we have a one year medical retina fellowship, um, as I mentioned, and um, a couple of fellows ago, that person couldn't be sent to procedure clinic because she couldn't independently bill. So, and she was interested in uveitis, and she was <laughs> good. <laughs> and sadly, she was gone after a year. So that was very nice. Um, and our current uh, medical retina fellow, we have a similar situation. So she's with me a lot more, and she's also very interested in uveitis. But indeed, I I don't I I can't depend on. Um, until July, I couldn't depend on having somebody who routinely was preparing my charts and, and attempting to answer questions. It would be awfully nice. Um, yeah. But and I, I have this dream of making our medical retina fellowship a combined medical retina and uveitis. <laughs> <laughs> and then that person would be required to spend Wendy, time. Wendy, you and I so. have similar dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a resident with me a half day a week. Yeah. And, and I would say that as they're with us as a PGY3, PGY4 year. And during their PGY3 year, we try to prioritize thinking about workup and learning the exam findings of uveitis and when you should be considering imaging. And then when they're back as the third year or whatever, PGY4 year, we try to prioritize thinking a little bit about how you as a comprehensivist would initially manage a patient. And then if you were needing to work with a rheumatologist, say you're more practicing a rural location or someplace where there's an underserved uveitis community, what might be your first step or two at least down that immunosuppressive pathway, even if you personally weren't prescribing those. Um, but I too dream of a day with a fellow. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very, it's very interesting because, you know, my perspective is obviously as being a trainee. So I'd say, you know, Laura and I did our, did our residency at the same place and our UVS fellowship at the same place. And, you know, their, um, you know, trainees touch every single patient, right? Like you have either a UVS fellow for the most part or resident um, working up, or charting or seeing every single uveitis patient um, before um, before our attendings for most for most clinics, not all the time. And we like to think that we don't slow the clinics down, <laughs> but but I know there are times where you know our the attending kind of walks in and says, "Okay, that was a good thirty minutes you had in there. <laughs> time time to time to move on." So yeah, definitely definitely a balance um, between helping your clinics run a little bit more smoothly, but not 
not uh, adding an excessive amount of time um, for your trainings. Lynn, I want to circle back since I know you actually do a fair amount of research. When you first started, how did you negotiate that out that you wanted to have that amount of protected time? Because that's a, a fairly large proportion compared to, I think, the average even academic practitioner for having that protected time. And what resources did they have available for you? Or did you already come with like a funding, some sort of K award? Or what was what was that conversation like when you were talking to Dr. Margolis? Yeah. Uh, so the probably the one of the most important, so I talked to several places, you know, I, I interviewed or sent cold resumes and whatever to, to multiple places and talked to a few different scenarios. But I think one of the most important things about WashU is that Todd Margolis is a clinician scientist. So he's been He's, he understands what it takes to have a successful research practice, and um, he understands the, the need for protective time, and he's really, really supportive. So, um, but, com- but by coming at this from a kind of an MD-PhD perspective, um, most of the, like, so my rheumatology colleagues or pathology colleagues, they're going to do like a half day of clinic and the rest research, and that's kind of the expectation. So they do this clinical fellowship that's kind of two-thirds clinic in the first year and then barely any clinic and they can do fellowship as long as fellowship slash you know uh instructor for as long as they want as long as they're being somewhat productive and they're not you know paid a ton and so it's this like super protected long research phase that that's kind of the standard like when my phd mentor was telling me what i should look for and even todd um had a very todd margolis had a very protected i think maybe Um, like very minimal clinic at the very beginning of establishing his research career. And so he kind of advised me to do that, something like that as well, be very protective. I really love taking care of patients and, you know, patients are the center of my research. And I almost didn't go back into research after my PhD because I just, just research and the delayed gratification wasn't a good thing for me. So, um, so I, I, I might be my own worst enemy in terms of protecting my research time. Like Wendy, I'll always, I'll always leave the lab to see a patient, you know, and try to do that less and think of it as I'm not saying no, but I'm saying yes to this other thing, but it's hard, you know? So I, I started out um, asking for thinking, I'd, I'd like to be 50, 50, you know? um, but, but, you know, here listening to the other people who said, maybe you should be like 10% clinic and okay. So let's, let's shoot for 30% and I'll, you know, I can do it. Uh, so that's that's kind of what I asked for. And so that was what was put in my offer letter, even though I think m- my chairman was willing to give me more protected time. Um, and so as I've been learning, I, I need a little bit more time, especially this year to start my lab. But uh, so he um, he gave me a fantastic offer. I think a salary that was similar to other people that I knew were starting uveitis slash medical retina or comp in an academic environment. Uh, practice. So I got that salary that was similar. Um, And I have a little office and I had um, a very nice, like a hundred thousand dollars a year for research money. Um, Yeah. For, for three years. Um, And the idea was that, you know, you'll, you'll work towards getting a K award. And when you have that award, you'll negotiate for a full package. That's the same as what we give everybody else, which is more like uh, one and a half to 2 million at WashU. Uh, and so what I did was started this project, we're doing single cell RNA sequencing from um, eye and blood samples to learn more about the cells in, in patients' eyes. And I'm working um, with a very uh, established 
rheumatology clinician scientist who's not seeing patients at all anymore. And then there's a, a younger rheumatologist who's kind of similar to me in um, career stage. Uh, so we were, I was working in, in Wayne, this guy, Wayne Yokoyama's lab, uh, and, that, and, and sort of this pseudo postdoc slash um, a professor, you know, assistant professor role, which I think has its pros and cons. Um, pros are that, you know, I, I'm making more money than I would if I was a postdoc and have a little more clout sometimes maybe for some internal award, like internal university awards. Um, cons are that the tenure clock was already started before I, you know, even learned this new mm-hmm. research skill, like this new research arena that I'm start that I'm in. Um, I, you know, you have, there's, there's a different requirements with different grants for how independent or mentored you are. And so that's been kind of um, challenging to figure out. So the K award, for example, wants you to be very mentored. So I, uh, my first uh, K application, multiple criticisms that I appeared to be too independent (laughs) from my mentor, which it's remarkable that they can read that through the lines, even though I thought that I detailed how dependent I was on this person but uh, whatever. And then the um, RPB, so Research to Prevent Blindness Organization, also gives some career development awards. They want you to be dependent, mm-hmm. or independent, sorry. Independent. And so there I felt like, you know, I was, uh, I didn't have my own lab when I applied for that award. And we kind of said, oh, I have this space in the department, but I think they don't give you feedback, but I think probably they felt I was too dependent. So anyway, that has all been kind of, um, you know, nobody, I I ask people too, should I start as a, a, as a um, instructor or should I start as a, as faculty? And nobody really gave me a straight, nobody had like, you know, solid advice. So that's something um, that depending on what kind of research, some um, program somebody wanted to start, I might think a little bit more and, and ask a bunch more people that question and think about what grants you might need and how to sort of strategically apply that. But um, I, my, fortunately, WashU has lots of money, lots of great collaborators and colleagues and lots of resources. And uh, so it's it's working out just fine. The tenure clock is something interesting that you bring up that other ophthalmologists outside this academic practice system don't actually have to think about. I know that's different at each institution. And I think that's something that trainees do need to think about. So here at, at University of Wisconsin, there is tenure track for people that are more like you that are, are planning this heavy research component. And then we have more of these clinical tracks, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and but that's a big initial choice you have to make and, and you can change, but to make that change actually requires a lot of documentation and a lot of reasons for why you're making the switch. And then here, for example, we have, like you said, there's a clock, we have seven, now eight because of COVID essentially, um, years to go from assistant to associate professor and that's the expectation and it's whether you're on tenure track there's a set of expectations of what you'll meet for that and same here if you're on the clinician track you know there's a set of expectations and obviously the clinician is a little more clinic oriented <laughs> with, with what those expectations are um, but I didn't feel like I had when I came out of fellowship an entirely very good understanding of what all these different things really meant on a on the ground level and I think that is something for people to look into Wendy, what's kind of Mayo's approach for those types of positions being not true, you know, kind of this mixed model of academics, but also kind of this quaternary center of excellence? Yeah, and I I would say I definitely had no idea of any of that (laughs) to ask um, as a trainee. And, um, you know, I I was 
trained by people that never had to worry about that either. Um, and so I, I had no resources. <laughs> um, so at Mayo, we don't have a 10-year system. Um, and while we have an academic title and there is a, um, a promotion system to move up, I, I didn't even know there, I don't know if, I guess there is a timeline and I wasn't aware of it. Um, I had been sort of told a while ago that I should apply for <laughs> academic promotion and it's, it, it's, keeps getting pushed down on my list. So I have applied now. I've been told I, I should probably be able to <laughs> be an associate. Um, so we'll see if my title ever changes. It doesn't mean anything different for me in terms of um, salary. Uh, I'm still going to be doing the same things that I do. But, you know, I, I probably should have thought a little bit more about it because, of course, if I ever go anywhere else, it probably would have will matter. And oh, well, <laughs> too late now. Um yeah, we, we don't have a, a really a system um, that's that puts you on a more academic track. And of the people that have been successful doing that in my department, um, I think in part it's been either because so one of our, one of um, my glaucoma colleagues actually did his um, residency training with us and continued to work in in the lab when even when he was a resident and he had intended to go elsewhere and it was our good luck that um, that his position elsewhere fell through and so he is on the on the on the verge of um, having a lot of um, independent funding which is excellent. And then my other colleague, the way he did it is because he um, collaborated a lot with neurology. Um, so one of our uh, neuro um, neuro-ophthalmologists. And, so I, and I think, Lynn, you mentioned that. And I think that is a, a good way to to get in because, you know, you can, you can kind of use other um, people's resources a bit to help yourself get established. I I wish I had done that because our rheumatology department is big, um, but it, it it's so far... It, I, I have always not had enough non-clinical time to really, um, I think, move forward. And that, that may be something that I do as my, as my daughter is now a little older. Lynn, when you started, was it pretty, did they share pretty upfront with you? Like, what are the tenure track, like timelines in your institution? Or did you kind of start and then you were like, oh. My understanding is that it's deliberately not crystal clear. So, uh and I think there's some good to that and some bad to that. It's, you know, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't completely understand the whole process. I know that you have 10 years to become a associate professor, but that basically at seven years, your application packet needs to go in because it takes, I don't know. I don't know why it takes that long. But so I know that I need to have an R01 by that, by that time point. Um, I think in uveitis, it's easy, easy to get invited talks and, you know, you, you, need, you need some of that. You need some recognition by your national, maybe even international colleagues. So I think in uveitis, the field is so small and so nice that um, it's easy to get that. Um, so I need some papers and, and an R01. Um, you know, at WashU, the chair can only be the chair until they're 70. So my chair... Um, has, I don't know, less than five years to go. Um, he told me I shouldn't worry so much about tenure because I have a skill set that's going to be so valuable that I don't need to worry about not having a job. Um, and I think that there's probably some truth to that, although other people in other departments are like, oh, I don't know, you know, he's not going to be the chair forever. And, you know, you, you know, as Wendy mentioned, if you're going to go somewhere else, it, it would probably help you, you know, acquire a better position. 
So I think, um, I don't know. I, I don't have enough room in my brain to worry about everything. So I don't worry a ton about that because I need to get an R01 to get my, you know, keep my lab, my research program going. Mm-hmm. And um, I need to get publications to get the R01 and publications after that. So I have a feeling that if I do, my, I, <laughs> I think this is the default that I need to, I have to land at psychologically. But I feel like if I do my job, the tenure will work out. You know, I, it's not so there, you know, it's not so political, I guess that, I don't know. And I don't think that there's anybody that dislikes me. So I I don't know. know, I know that there's politics to it. And I feel like a lot of it is at a lot of that wouldn't be in my control anyway, but you know, I'm a good citizen. I do a job that is, that it's in demand. And um, if I get my research moving, I, I'm assuming that all the, the things will be, will fall into place. We have annual reviews with our chair where you kind of fill out your um, producti- uh, productivity kind of analysis. And, th- and my, ch- you know, my chairman talks to me about, uh, you know, what I should do if I'm doing good, if I'm meeting benchmarks. So there, I think that that's probably going to happen in any healthy ophthalmology department. And that's probably your, your best way to make sure you're on track for meeting whatever uh, promotion goals you need to meet. I think this transitions nicely to basically when you're looking at your contract, um, a lot of us aren't sure, well, what what can I negotiate in this contract? What what specific things should I make sure are included in my contract? Um, Wendy, when you were looking at your contract or maybe even now as you have, you know, younger trainees look going and looking into their contracts, what do you feel can be negotiated? And specifically as a UBITIS uh, practitioner, what should you um, hope to try to negotiate into your contract? <laughs> I was so clueless. Um, <laughs> there was, there was, <laughs> I, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm probably not a very good resource um, for that in part because Mayo is salaried and which is very different than, um, than just about every place else. Um, and it didn't occur to me that I could have asked for things. Um, and I think it, you know, it, it does look very different and, and, and Laura's a great resource for that because she has had the experience of, of, you know, being in a job as a fresh out of fellowship and then as a person that's had several years under her belt. Um, but I do think about it in case I ever go anywhere else. So yeah, um, if you're going to practice uveitis, and if you're primarily, and if you're going to manage your own immunosuppression, for sure, the you know whatever combination that you can get um, is in terms of help is really good. The problem is, that, as both of you have said, you've got to pay, you've got to be able to pay for it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's going to come out of your salary, however that's determined. Um, and so there, I think understanding the the framework of the practice that you're joining, whether it's academic or private. And seeing if anybody else has done that um, may be a, a resource. Um, each practice is different in terms of technician, um, you know, <laughs> distribution. And I didn't, there really was no negotiating room for me there, I think, um, because our, our department is literally physically on one floor and we have a, a pool of technicians that's um, divided up amongst all of us. So that's very practice specific. Um, we do not have any scribes um, at, at Mayo, but I, you know, I've noticed when people do that, that's definitely something that's very valuable. So if you can negotiate for that, and again, you may have to 
make sure you can pay for it. <laughs> That's also huge. And however, um, as an, you know, when you join, if there is negotiable time and funding, um, certainly trying to figure out what's available and asking for what is reasonable makes sense. Some of us probably are apt to, um, to under ask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and um, so they're, you know, trying to figure out what other people have is important. I, I don't know. I, I just didn't, now it seems like there are more people going into uveitis. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't know. Our generation, um, there were there were not a lot. Of, I felt like there weren't a lot of people going into uveitis for a while, and so there were a lot of people that had been in practice forever, and so there weren't any resources essentially that I knew of when I when I was getting out. So, it it I think it's great for people coming out now that there's a lot more information. That's part of the reason why they actually wanted to have these conversations in that. So many of us that do train in UVI just tend to be these very academic types. You know, it's like Lynn and I are both MD-PhDs. We've been in the system for so long. And then there's always trainees about There's always fellows about It's You just don't know what to ask for when you're in a situation that doesn't look just like that. And that's why we've been trying to have this conversation with the private practice um, people in a different episode. And then now with you guys here, because you both have somewhat different models of than that uveitis citadel with two fellows and a resident and and you know on-site rheumatologist so this has been very helpful i think um approaching the converse i i I do not claim to have any good negotiating skills and i think i have (laughs) a very generous and supportive chairman but one thing i've noticed in talking to him in in little steps like negotiating little things along the way and even actually he gave me my startup package before my k is finalized but um, is that I think um, presenting presenting a case for this is what I want to accomplish and these are the resources I need to accomplish that. And whether that is, I want to see 18 patients because I see there's this demand here. This is what I need to see or, you know, whatever. You're, I think coming from retina, they see, you know, coming from kind of a retina uveitis training, they see more patients than I do. But, um, you know, what, whatever the goal is, I want to see 10 patients in a clinic session. I want to you know, do this much surgery and these types of surgery, this is, and I need, and I want to, you know, take care of my patients to the, this standard that I'm used to taking. To, you know, these are the resources that I need, whether it's a nurse, because you need, you know, uh, you know, a second pair of, you know, a second brain for analyzing <laughs> labs and, and counseling patients. And the fact is, if your nurse is doing that, you're seeing a patient and billing, you know? So, so I think you can, you can, it doesn't, um, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I think approaching it from not a scarcity and like, I'm, you know, I'm worried that I'm not going to have enough, but from a, uh, kind of an abundance perspective saying, this is the value that I can bring. These patients are going to get excellent care that we're going to save vision, which is every department's goal, you know, and we're going to provide high quality care. We're going to add referrals to our hospital system, establish great rapport with other departments, like all these things that you bring that, you might not think about in when we, we just are in clinic thinking about how am I going to get through this clinic and see all these patients and like do all this on my own. You know, it's always been a team, you know, it's always a team and approach. And I think um, talking about building the team and uh, I don't know, you know, women, I think especially are not great at negotiating for ourselves, but when we can think of it as negotiating for someone else, the patient, the department, the team, the trainee, um, we're very successful in advocating for those kind of things. And I think just thinking about 
thinking about this is the goal that we want to accomplish. These are all the things that we need to accomplish that goal. I think you're, you're going to get the resources you need, you know? That's really well put. Yeah. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think, I think it's probably just like you both have said, it, it's not something it, it, you don't, you might want to ask for too much upfront and then, you know, say, well, I don't have enough patience to really require that now, but, you know, maybe once you've established a practice and obviously, you know, kind of shown your worth to the department, you probably have a little bit more room for negotiating. So there's, there's always opportunities to do that. And I think for yeah. our trainees, it's important to understand that you might not get everything you want out of the outset, there are going to be some growing pains. Um, and then you can kind of pick and choose what sort of things are kind of indispensable to practice for you. And then you can hopefully negotiate those um, later on once you're actually in practice for a few years. I think that's a really good point. And, and realizing what things you need now and what things you may need in the future as you get to, you know, these other milestones of more clinic days or more ORs or more patients or whatever, you know. Well, I think that wraps things up very nicely. Um, we want to thank Wendy and Lynn for joining us uh, on another episode. It's been great to have you guys. And thank you for joining us and spending your um, Sunday morning with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been fun. I, I love that you guys are doing this for our community. This is fantastic. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And this is another episode of Headlight in the Fog. Check us out at uviatispodcast.com. Take care and stay safe. <laughs>